Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We record each episode before a live audience at Longitude, Oakland, California's premier tiki bar. I'm your host, Annalene Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor, and my co-host is Sarus Faravar, the senior business editor. In this episode, we talk to Stanford anthropologist Krish Sita about humanity's relationship with butchery and the history of meat eating. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Krish. It's amazing that you came all the way up from Stanford and we appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in meat. I have a a bit of an odd background in relation to uh, an introduction to meat. And you mentioned about being at Stanford and it just doesn't seem to make any sense to have been a butcher and to now be at Stanford. I don't think that's that's a usual trajectory to arrive at this institution, this world-renowned <laughs> institution. I walked into a butcher shop when I was 13 years old. The guy offered me a job. It was in Brixton in southeast London. I accepted the job only because I was, I was awed that somebody would offer a 13-year-old a job. And Is that even legal? In the- it was absolutely illegal. And my qualifications was that I was tall for my age. And that's a lie. I wasn't tall for my age. It's just, you know, we needed somebody that could run errands and that was my introduction to to butchery so I did seven years as a butcher from the age of 13 to about 20 years old and so when I left butchering found a roundabout route to get to archaeology had no background in the subject right place right time and being just tall enough I'm curious because obviously for hundreds of thousands of years humans have been eating meat but it's only really recently that meat has become cultural. When did it go from just like chomp, chomp meat to like having it be something where we had rituals around it? And I think that you've described something that is absolutely sort of the, the underlying problem with our view of meat, is that we've become so focused on the outcome of butchering the product meat, we've forgotten everything else to do with how you come to have meat. If I ask anybody in this audience, what's the first thing that defines us as human beings? Please. Anybody? Food. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My, you might have said art to me. The first art is from Blombos Caves, inscribed on ochre. And that's 80, 90,000 years old. The first fire we've got evidence for is about one and a half million years old. The first evidence we have of butchery is two and a half million years old. There's some evidence to suggest that Long before we were humans, as anatomically humans, anatomically modern humans, we were doing things that were fairly clever with technology, making, making tools out of stone, and with butchering. And I think that's the thing that we've missed entirely, is that we've decided to concentrate on the tool and not really think about the practice, not think about the social aspects of what it means for us to share meat. I've been in butcher shops and I've seen the like, posters of like, here's what the different ways you can cut up a steak. If I ate a steak from two million years ago, would it look like one that I would eat now? Brilliant question, actually. <laughs> because in a way, I, would, I have to say yes and no. On one hand, we've got, we're really wedded to the idea of cuts of meat portioned in specific ways that we recognize. And cutting portions of meat literally from muscle groups that are next to each other. These things can only really take place when we create animals that have distinctions between their muscle structures, that have variations in the amount of fat and so on. So the idea of a cut of meat is much more complex than that. And it's something we could say probably starts at around um, the point that we start to improve animals for their meat content only. The basic principles of butchering, to dismember an animal, to dismember, process a carcass into individual components, to remove 
skin to remove parts of its internal organs, to compartmentalize so that we can share, that has to be a continuation. The, the nuances are different. The tools are different. We mechanize everything now. We've mechanized the processing of animals. But the nuances are separate out something that has a clear trajectory all the way through. Now, different groups of people have either formal or informal rituals around what foods, what meat they eat, what meat they don't eat, how they butcher it. Where, where do you think that that begins to get started? Or what's the first record that we have of that? People who are predominantly hunter-gatherers, modern hunter-gatherers who are entirely modern people, they just have different technologies we, we might be familiar with, still show evidence for very distinct mechanisms for differentiating between what is eaten and what isn't. With the Matu in Australia, the social context is so powerful, they don't want to hunt large animals because it's so, it becomes such a pain in the ass to separate out and give individual people components of meat. It's just much easier to have a small animal that's easy to share. And that really tells you that the skills, the knowledge of hunting and butchering, we became so adept at that very early on in our evolution that you know, we found other ways to become distinctive. Agriculture is not that old, 12, 11, 12,000 years old. And in the period that we've had agriculture, the world has changed entirely. In the period that we've had industrialism, industrialization, the world has changed entirely. And at the basis of every single one of those steps are animals. And another way of expressing that is the way that we separate out those animals into the animals themselves into portions and how we share that. And those things are progressively getting more and more complex. Hmm. So I'm curious about like what happens in industrialization when suddenly we have mechanization, we have all the machines that we know and love that lead to the world that we have today. How does that, how are animals at the base of that? The American mindset is that Ford and the production line produces car, to produce cars is really the thing that drove mechanization. And in fact, 50, 60 years before that, compartmentalizing animals into small portions with a person no longer undertaking the whole butchery process, but just one or two cuts. And in a way, when we think about industrialization, we separate out ideas uh, along these lines, industrial and mechanized, um, agricultural, farming, etc. So those two things become divided. If you take Britain as an example, during industrialization, the period before it, wool is the most significant commodity that the country has. And part of the reason for industrialization is to develop ways to mechanize the production and processing of wool. It's really glib of us to say, well, you know, these animals suddenly become nothing more to us than food. That's not the case at all. Industrialism, really, it's based on the way that we change our view of animals and our relationship with them. Can you talk a little bit about what the Romans brought in terms of butchery and butchering technology uh, to, you know, what we would now call the UK? It's quite amusing because um, I'm talking to you guys now about something that's very modern, and I spent all of my time working on um, Roman and medieval material from, from Britain specifically because it was such an idiosyncratic case. You have the Iron Age preceding that where you've got a very, what, what is often described as a traditional form of butchery, traditional form of animal husbandry. The Roman influx pretty much changes all of that. Um, and you see a distinction in the types of animals that are brought. The animals themselves become bigger, and there's a suggestion that they're imported over from the continent. And that also led to changes in landscape, because you've got to accommodate animals that need more feed. They're bigger themselves. Wait, what kind of animals were they bringing? Cattle. Predominantly cattle. Um, the main improvements were in cattle, but also pig. Transformation is entire when it comes to the butchery process and inclusion of new types of tools. The assemblages themselves, so most of my work has been based on archaeological bone assemblages of animal bone. The assemblages change 
you know, it's night and day, the, particularly the urban centers, the military centers. So uh, there's a suggestion that probably the military influence and the context of urbanization, which is something we're very familiar with on this side of the world, you know, it has an impact on the way that we provision these centers. Um, and the tools themselves have to change. They modify because more animals are being processed, but they modify also because those animals themselves are bigger. Is that literally what that means? They just need bigger knives? They, the knives do become bigger, but that's not why they need larger knives. The knives become heavier. And because the animal, the bone density itself is, is, is greater, it's more dense, to be able to process that bone, to work through the bone. The animal's morphology absolutely dictates how the butchery is undertaken. You can't work through bone, unless you're, you're really smashing it, you can't work through bone with, with flint tools. It's very hard to do. When you have knives, um, you can start to disarticulate in a slightly more effective way. When you have cleavers, that's a kind of step change in terms of what the animal's morphology constrains you to do. And we overcome that entirely with industrialization and mechanization. Are there certain signs that you look for? Like, are you looking to see, like, all right, certain kinds of animal bones or certain kinds of tools? Like, what changes? Combination. Mm -hmm. A combination of those things. But we'd never look at just the animal remains. So you'd look at ceramics. You'd look at a whole gamut of other artifact types. But if, if we only had animal bones to look at, you could probably look, for example, the shape and size of the animals. There's some modifications there the types of butchering that's taking place, the sheer number of bones. I've had this discussion with, with friends who claim to be vegetarians and yet they eat things that live in the ocean. Yep. Uh, so as somebody who studies meat, would you consider things that live in the ocean to be meat? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Clear cut. All right, you guys, it's definitive. <laughs> Birds, a fowl, of, of mammals, of fish, it's all considered flesh. What about bugs? Pro I, yeah, I... I I, more for bugs. I think bugs are a really good way forward. Get us to eat less meat. But I don't think you can constitute bugs as flesh. It's complicated because there's a number of reasons why people don't eat meat. And it's not just because they don't want to eat flesh. It's because maybe they don't want to take life, etc., etc. And that becomes really hard to differentiate between. So if you don't want to eat meat, then eat bugs, no problem. Okay. But if you don't want to kill animals, then don't eat bugs. Mm -hmm. Using your historical knowledge, um, what, what do you make of the current craze for paleo dieting and for this idea that we're getting back into? <laughs> I heard people in the audience crying. So much nonsense. <laughs> if, if we have been, the idea that evolution stopped I don't know, however many millions or decades or how, whatever number you... Evolution goes on all the time. We're adapting to the environment around us. We're adapting to our diet. To suggest that we should go back to eating the... And I actually think that very recently there's been some good research to say paleo diet actually means you get less vitamins, you get less this, you get less that. There's many complications with having that type of diet. And it's just not suited to the modern, the modern constitution. I would refer you all to Mark Poland's work on nutritionism. I mean, that's brilliant. That's really telling us what we should do today is just eat food and stop with all the fads. A number of years ago at home, I roped uh, a good friend of mine into cooking a turducken. The idea of like stuffing meats into other meats, is there any like historical antecedent for this? Is this an American aberration? No, is this, uh... no, no, it's not an American aberration. The medieval period, for example, was a, if you could afford it, one of the ways that you really expressed your wealth was through food, was through the expression of, of uh, how the range of animals you could have. And at feast, you could lit you're literally talking 
hundreds of sheep, large animals, small animals, really important that the way you presented the animal. It's not anything fundamentally wrong. It, it doesn't become better because there's precedent. <laughs> there are a range of dishes that include animals being combined with other animals, maybe not quite in the same way as a tadakan. I think the tadakan is really the idea of more is more. <laughs> yeah? More is more, that's a real American yeah. strength. What is the most forbidden meat? It really depends on your perspective and where you are in the world. Pork, I would say. But I think pork is, a, is one animal in particular that's been ostracized in a range of world religions. Mm -hmm. Cattle, for example, are, it's not eaten for another important world religion point of view and the number of world religion points of view. Mm -hmm. So it becomes complicated. It's often the case, groups of people who don't eat pork live in places where people really depend on pork. There's a number of cases where I've worked in assemblages where it should have been a point in time, in history, where the group of people, Ottoman for example, did not, should not have been eating pork and we still find evidence for pork in those assemblages. So I've had a, a, two friends, one who is Islamic, one who is, uh, one who is Jewish, both of them have said to me, I don't eat pork at all, of course I eat bacon. And, you know, that's <laughs> weird, really? Absolutely. Both it's of them American, yeah, actually. It's yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's very hard to be strict about what you eat and what you don't eat. We've talked about the history of you know, eating animals. We've talked about tools that we use to kill animals. But we have not heard anything about the ethics of eating animals. Where, I mean, I think it would be interesting to think about, historically, when do we, start, when do we first start hearing concerns like this because this isn't a new concern this is something animal rights issues have been exactly. a huge part um, of history we had the commencement of the, the ideals of animal rights starting really with the cruelty towards animals initially in relation to blood sports and britain was the first i think a few hundred years ago now initiate these rules against blood sports against things like dog fighting and so on we'll initiate bull baiting that's when you set dogs on them and what happens is this starts to catalyze a transformation in the way slowly, slowly, we see a, a difference. People starting to accept that the animal shouldn't be treated in these way, in this way. Often bull baiting was done prior to the animal being butchered because it was considered that the animal's flesh would taste better if it had been baited. It's, it's incredibly cruel practice that was not universally, but it was part of normal production of animal, animals for, for consumption. You have a situation where the general public gets so frustrated with seeing death in a very public way that we have the development of the abattoir system. The development of the abattoir systems that we saw in Europe, Britain, France, Germany, were adopted in the US and then became you know, something completely industrialized, completely mechanized. It resulted in infinitely more cruelty to the animals on a massively greater scale. We may want to see butchers as something barbaric, but in a way um, that barbarism is something that maybe is much more modern in terms of the way that the, the industry itself developed and pushed people to function in a way that maybe just disconnected them entirely. All the laws that we have literally around the world today to protect animals is from that basic initial laws that they started in Britain against things like bull baiting, dog fighting and so on. Removing ourselves from any sort of relationship with, with the animal, uh, the knowledge of butchering, the knowledge of actually seeing how the animal was cut up, that's absolutely not the case today and we buy meat wrapped up in cellophane, processed in a very specific way. There's parts of the animal that are waste now that have never been considered waste in the past. We have a, a, a completely different system. How much did the processing of larger animals drive the development of non-flint tools? Funnily enough, the transition from uh, lithics, from 
flint tools to metal, we assume that you would just suddenly take up this, this new technology. It's metal, it's, it's infinitely more adept, it's a composite material, it's functionally more diverse, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not the case. Whether we're talking about Near East, Britain, Central Europe, all of the evidence actually shows a much more diffuse and slow uptake of that technology. Even though in weapons, in all other facets, metal is taken up fairly rapidly to really the, the loss of the other technology fairly rapidly. If you consider that the knowledge hasn't changed for about two and a bit million years, you're probably not going to transform rapidly until you've got other drivers taking place. And part of those are centralized population, more demand for meat, more more consumption of meat, et cetera, et cetera. Has anyone done any work on the social implication of changing into metal tools? I mean, I'm assuming they're more expensive. Did they change the population and require specialization? It's a really complicated thing to say. It might be just as difficult for you to go and find flint, mine flint, and produce tools from it as it is to find iron ore, metal ore. And those first tools, bronze, kind of amalgams, alloys of bronze, they're not brilliant tools. They don't really retain a hard edge in the same way that iron does. So the process, those two things are kind of happening in very different directions. I wanted to know a little bit more about uh, what animals eat and how that impacts the meat. Um, obviously, cows weren't eating corn uh, in their natural habitat, and now they are. Can you talk a little bit about that? And cattle are fantastic. They've got this incredible system of digestion. They can eat cardboard. Should they eat cardboard? That's <laughs> <completely> <laughs> cakes. Uh, they can break down cellulose. It doesn't mean that they, that's what they should be given to eat. We have completely changed these animals. They don't look, constitutionally, they probably don't look very similar to what they did in the past, particularly when those animals were working, as opposed to just literally eating, putting on as much fat and meat as possible within a short space of time. So we, we won't really be able to see that. I don't think it's a particularly good thing for the animal. You are what you eat. However we look at that, that's probably an axiom that, that holds some truth. It's a small thing to give them corn. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing for them. You know how there's the thing in Greek sacrifice where you have to make the animal nod so that there's the appearance of consent before you slaughter it? Mm -hmm. Is there anything else in like the rest of the history of meat that's like that or other ways that cultures have tried to like basically deal with the anxiety of knowing that you're taking a life in order to eat? You all have some anxiety about eating meat, whether you want to admit it or not. We all do. The, the closest I've ever been to being a vegetarian, seriously, was when I was a butcher. I think in some ways we might think raising the animal would make it harder for us to kill it, etc., etc. It's very hard to differentiate between what's socially defined and what's personal. In terms of sacrifice, when we were talking about the consumption of meat in the Roman Empire, for example, apparently some, some fairly good suggestions that meat only became a provision to be eaten after sacrifice. But if you want to consider bull baiting along those same lines, it's a production process. It's something that we have to do, good or bad, we have to do something before we kill that animal. Because it's really hard to kill something unless you become completely inured to it. And I think in some ways, maybe that's why humans very early on develop systems of trapping and so on. It's, it sort of detached us away. Every single culture, virtually, there is some, the best word I can use is ritual in place to ease that process. And for some, cultures that just went out completely there is there is no death there is no consumption of meat because of the death that it creates and probably i mean the largest religions in the world function off that premise